1: You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you.
2: CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pagase.
3: Welcome to America Changed Forever. And you know what? This is a special edition of America Changed Forever. We're going to take a look back at the biggest stories of 2022 and the original exclusive coverage that we delivered to you here on ACF over the past year. Here's how the year began on ACF at the beginning of January. Congressman Mark VC of Texas, who is the founder of the Voting Rights Caucus in the House. A lot of Republicans out there think the election was stolen. So they want to change how people vote. And they want to change, you know, voter ID laws. You know, there there are some people who who can buy into what they're saying. It's too easy for people to vote out there. You know, what's the problem with asking someone
2: for an ID? Well, how do you respond to that? What ends up happening is that you're making it a lot harder for people of color, uh, like in the districts that I represent, uh, that vote heavily Democratic to be able to cast their vote. And so Republicans will oftentimes throw their hands up in the air and say, no, we're not doing it. We're, we're doing this to hurt Democrats. We're not doing it to hurt people of color. We're doing it to hurt Democrats. But if you put together, if, if you make it, if you, for instance, with, with the Texas uh, vote by mail law now, where you have to put the last four digits of your Social Security number, or your driver's license on the ballot, and then you have to all and, and, and it has to match that uh, on the application, you're making it harder for people, you know, like my grandmother that just passed away a couple of years ago. That's she voted by mail all the time and never had any problems voting by mail. But if you're going to force her to look for her driver's license that she didn't use the last twenty years of her life, so she can find the last four digits on 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 that document, then you're making it harder uh, for uh, people like her to vote, and that's just wrong. Uh, and they know good and well, that it disproportionately affects communities of color. Adam Brewster is a CBS News political reporter.
4: So what we've found is that really over the past year, since January 6th, but even more specifically going back to early November 2020, um, and possibly even before, but certainly after the election, um, many election workers, particularly in the hotly contested battleground states, places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Um, you know, these officials have faced, you know, really intimidating messages. They have come online, uh, whether that's via email or social media. There have been uh, certainly many threatening voicemails left for officials.
3: And here is how we ended the year last week. Christopher Rodriguez, who runs Homeland Security for Washington, D.C., and he was in that command center watching the Capitol be overrun. we were trying to get help from the, the D.C.
2: National Guard. We asked immediately for the D.C. National Guard because we knew that there were supporters of the former president that were coming into the city uh, several days before January 6th. You'll recall there were protests on the 5th as well. Um, And a lot of the crowds were coming in on the third and the fourth. And so we wanted those assets in place um, as soon as possible. What was concerning for me as the uh, Homeland Security Director was that we didn't have an answer.
3: We're going to take you on a little journey through 2022, beginning with our coverage of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It was March 11th, 2022, just weeks after the invasion began. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky vows not to surrender.
5: Our resistance for almost two weeks has shown you that we will not
2: surrender because this is our home. It is our families and children. We will fight until we can win back our land, until we get answers for our killed people, for our killed children.
3: CBS Radio's Steve Futterman is
6: on the Ukraine border. I sometimes talk to people when they walked across, 30 seconds after they walked across, and they're elated. There's this strange connection between the elation, the euphoria, and the sadness. They're so glad to be here, safe in a country they feel safe in, but they're so sad they were forced to leave their own country.
3: Chef Eric Bruner Yang was interviewed by Billy Shore, the founder of the anti-hunger organization Share Our Strength. Shore contacted Brunner Yang at the border, where the chef and other volunteers for World Central Kitchen are feeding over 100,000 refugees per
4: week.
7: Uh, Eric, t- tell, tell us exactly where you are, as, as close as you can tell us to where you are.
4: Um, so for the last week, I've been uh, kind of at this border stop, Miyaka. It is probably one of the biggest border stops in terms of refugees traveling through both countries. Um, in, term, in regards to all the border stops. Sorry, I'm not very well-spoken today. I'm quite tired.
7: Uh, i bet you are. H- how close to the border are you?
4: Uh, we're basically right there. So it's like the Immigration Checkpoint Center. Um, there's uh, two entrances. Um, it's hard to describe or talk about because I still really haven't had the time to decompress it or process it, but uh, mm-hmm. today we'll probably hit 35,000. 36,000 refugees in one day, in one day, just from this one stop. Oh my gosh. Um, roughly about, uh, about 100,000 to 120,000 refugees coming through just the Poland side of the border. So we're not even talking about Moldova, or Romania, or Hungary. And I think to date, the same 1.5 million. So we're really seeing about 10% of that on a daily basis
7: through the Poland side. Uh, And is everybody hungry? Does everybody that comes across need to be fed? They've come a long way.
4: Yes, people are hungry. But it was one thing that really kind of touched me yesterday was,
7: you know, we were serving
4: meals. This is probably like one in the morning. It's below freezing, um, white snow that's not sticking. So everything's like a little bit damp and super cold. Um, And she had uh, multiple World Central Kitchen meals. So, through her whole journey, she had been receiving meals from World Central Kitchen as she traveled from her town that she was from in Ukraine and here on this border of Poland. We were trying to give her another meal before she was getting on the bus. And I think that um, was really the type of progress we saw happen there over the last five or six days.
3: Jonathan Weiner is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement. He has worked on U.S.-Russia issues for decades.
6: There was a wonderful article about Putin's psychology that came out recently, written by a psychologist who said he used to feel resentment at people who were stronger than him. And then he felt anger against his equals. And now he feels mostly contempt, because no one is his equal anymore. And the contempt is internal as well as external. And so one of the ways of seeing this war is, is as an expression of his contempt for the West, a contempt for the Ukrainians, and a contempt for any opposition you might have within his country.
3: There were predictions, mostly coming from Moscow, that this invasion would take days. Why do you think it's gotten bogged down? Is
6: the Russian military not what it's uh, perceived to be? Well, the invasion of Kazakhstan, as it were, or the rescue, when there was a populist demonstration in January, it was a very fast operation, you know, lightning fast. The Georgia operation a decade ago, more than a decade, it, was, it happened quickly. They had another one next to Moldova, Um, Crimea went very fast. Uh, sometimes you can do very, very well with Blitzkrieg, but Ukraine's a big country for more than 40 million people and uh, they are resisting and they do have some arms and it's a lot of space to move through. And they also, as, as near as we can tell from the reporting, weren't told ahead of time, at least the ground troops, what it was they were going to do. They actually thought they were just going on and doing training, many of them. And so they had perhaps not been trained for this. And I think he expected that he would have a government of Quislings ready to go, um, to support him, that Zelensky would flee, resistance would crumble, and then he would deal with the weak West, a new German chancellor who didn't know what he was doing like Merkel had, had known, a Boris Johnson who'd not been performing tremendously convincingly at home. An American president who was old and who fled Afghanistan in a way that didn't look very strong. And so person country, by country, by country looked weak to him. I mentioned contempt. If you have contempt for everybody, you don't really expect they're going to be able to fight back very well. And if you've won for decades without huge consequences, why shouldn't you continue to keep winning? I mean, Hitler was a genius until he overreached. Napoleon was a genius until he overreached. Dictators tend to overreach after a while because nobody says no to them. And they they lose the inhibition of having natural barriers.
3: We're going to continue with our New Year's edition and our look back at the year that was, Tuesday, June 28th. A surprise witness was impaneled by the January 6th committee. Her name, Cassidy Hutchinson. The former aide to Mark Meadows, chief of staff, the final chief of staff, President Donald J. Trump.
8: As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, "Cast, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, and he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office, and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation. with was, Rudy, Mark, it sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, yeah, there's a lot going on, Cass. But I don't know, things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol. And when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now to which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel, And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles.
3: Early on in the White House, there was talk of people armed in the city at the ellipse where the president was to speak. And then with plans to go to the Capitol, people were armed and they knew about it in the White House. I mean, not just, you know, small arms. Some people were carrying AR-15s. We're going to talk to a former Secret Service agent. Not just any Secret Service agent. Larry Johnson is his name. And he spent 24 years as a U.S. Secret Service special agent, including turns supervising the Presidential Protection Division and the Criminal Investigation Division of the Secret Service. So he has a lot of experience. And I, I have so many questions to ask him You know about these Secret Service agents who were protecting former President Trump on January 6th. Larry Johnson, thanks for being with us. Jeff,
5: thank you for having me.
3: Let me ask you, Larry, you know, you don't have any direct knowledge of what happened on January 6th, but you do know what it's like to be in a presidential uh, protection division. You know what that's like. And so when you hear the kind of scrutiny that uh, agents are under as it relates to protecting former President Trump and what he allegedly did, what runs through your mind?
5: The Secret Service, you know, they, they have a mission. They have a mandate and, um, their mission, very mission driven agency. I don't think there's another agency in government that it, it works as hard as, as the Secret Service. And they also protect the office of the president, which I think is a key point to bring up. You have to keep in mind that the Secret Service is really an apolitical organization. You're you're so mission-driven; it doesn't really matter who sits in that seat.
3: So, does that mean that if crimes are being committed in the White House, the Secret Service turns the other cheek, doesn't doesn't
5: raise alarms? I mean, will you keep all the secrets to yourself? Again, we saw we saw this back when President Clinton was president and and with Monica Lewinsky. One of the things that the Secret Service fought tooth and nail was not having to testify in either an open hearing closed hearing court of public opinion because if you do testify or you're compelled to testify then part of the the mission of the secret service is that president or whoever sits in that seat has to trust you know his protectors we're right next to him not only 24 7 365 at any time we may not be in the room, but when he opens the door, we're outside the door. So there has to be a trust factor there. But in the case of Monica, Monica Lewinsky, uh, we did testify. A very good friend of mine testified, Larry Cockle. and and it turned out to be uh, okay. Uh, the President Clinton still trusted us. He knew that it wasn't us that we fought it tooth and nail. It wasn't us that were volunteering to. Tell stories that uh, keeps our job, you know, not only safer, but the trust factor on the Commission Book of the Secret Service. It says worthy of trust and confidence. So, to answer your question, uh, we don't we don't want to uh, get in the business of testifying. But if crimes have been committed, we're a law enforcement agency, so we're also following the law. So it's there's a little bit of uh, of gray area there. and so we'll see. I know that the Secret Service has said that they would testify. They haven't, But I, from my point of view, as a former Secret Service agent, I don't want them to testify. Make a statement that m- either none of it happened that or did something, did, whatever they want to say, but don't testify because then then Congress will call them up on any occasion to see if they can find out something that probably isn't something they need to know.
3: Uh-huh. Well, isn't it? I mean, whether you release a statement or testify uh, in public, you're still potentially admitting what Cassidy Hutchinson alleged that the president on January 6th was trying to go to the Capitol and he was irate in the vehicle. It was an SUV, not the beast, Yeah, but it was an SUV Uh, And he said something along the lines, I'm the FN president. Take me to the Capitol now. And then allegedly tried to to grab one of the agents involved. Um, You know, so these are serious allegations. I mean, whether they acknowledge that this happened in a paper statement or on TV, I mean, isn't it the same? I mean, aren't you? In some ways, perhaps giving the next president pause about who's around him.
2: Most
5: definitely, Jeff. It's a it's a little bit of a slippery slope. Uh, but what what I will, uh, you know, and, and and let me give let me give some context from my own experience. I've been yelled at on a number of occasions by the leader of the free world. It's not a good position to be in. You know, one of the things, and and I've been in the corporate world, and I've been in security for, you know, thirty five years plus. And security is a barrier. It is an inhibitor. It's not a, you know, a security. While it keeps you safe, it it it's it's not you know it 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 actually pisses people off when they can't do something because of a, cons- a security concern. So you know when you talk about this current situation and the president being in a suburban, the, the suburban is outfitted the same as the beast. It it there is it's soundproof bulletproof that the doors are controlled so I, again i'm going back to who really knows what happened it's going to be the secret service i don't know who was privy to the strong words of the president but it was it's not something jeff like you you know you, you get in the limo and you go take me to the capitol it's not a taxi service i guess that's my point it's structured there it has a it has occurred before where a president gets in the car and kind of wants to go off script. We call those off the record movements. And when I'm looking at this situation, I'm looking at the ellipse of the White House. The White House is a level five security government facility going to another level five government security at the Capitol, which at the time was deemed secure. Remember Vice President Pence was at the Capitol. So the only is, so when, if somebody asked the agent in charge, in this, in this case, it was Bobby, uh, I want to go to the Capitol. The Secret Service supervisor never says never. He will say, though, sir, we need 30 minutes to make sure that we can have a motorcade route prepared to go to the Capitol.
3: Tony Ornato, Robert, Bobby Engel.
5: Are the Secret Service agents at issue here? And and by the way, Tony was also uh, acting as deputy chief of staff for uh, if you don't already know that he he was kind of a crossover where he was fulfilling both roles. And it, it was something that was the Secret Service was. Was interested in doing to have a deputy inside so that the liaison between security and the staff would be easier. Now I don't know. Maybe they figured out that wasn't a good idea, but that was an experimental role. To Let's go back to 2022.
3: People in Highland Park, Illinois, with their kids, enjoying a Fourth of July parade, celebrating. The birth of this nation. All of a sudden, they hear the pop, 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 pop. Gunfire. Not fireworks. Gunfire. CBS News' Chris Van Cleave gives us his firsthand reporting of the 4th of July mass shooting in Highland Park.
9: I I keep thinking about this toddler who was born during the pandemic. Went to what was likely his first parade. Uh, it was the first, the community's first parade, Fourth of July parade, in, uh, three years since basically since the pandemic began. Uh, and minutes later, found himself an orphan because somebody had a high-powered rifle on a roof and was firing indiscriminately. Uh, that that sticks with you. Uh, I spoke with a woman who was there, and she's, you see her and her family in one of the photos that's been widely circulated, uh, with, surrounded by FBI in full tactical body armor, escorting her, her kids, and her dogs to safety. And she said, as, as the shots started, her husband, who's in the military, she thought they were fireworks. He yelled, active shooter, and pushed them all to the ground. And then they realized that there was no cover, that you know, people around them were being shot and made a run for it. And as they were running, her eight year old daughter looked up at her and said, mommy, I don't want to die. If you think about, that was a 4th of July parade. You know, it's one of those days where the country comes together and finds common reason to celebrate. And here you had a a parade that was bigger than normal uh, because there hadn't been one of these in a while in a a community that is widely seen as safe and uh, a good place to live. And that was shattered by at least 83 rounds of rifle fire raining down on a crowd of people. ten fifteen in the morning on a, on a really nice July day.
3: We're going to talk about Brittany Griner, Jameson Firestone, who is a businessman, lawyer. He was a member of the board of directors of the American Chamber of Commerce in Russia for six years. He lived in Russia for 18 years and he specializes in Russian law we know that vladimir putin and the kremlin they use the legal system in russia to their
10: benefit would you agree with that yeah but let's let's first start out with there there's never um there's never a good time to be arrested with an illegal substance in in, in russia and it, it appears that she had these vaping cartridges which are legal in in the us and in many places in the world but which are illegal in russia so there's never a good time to be Uh, trapped by something like that. And of course, having it happen during the war is bad.
3: Do you agree that she is being used as a political, a pawn in this political game?
10: Well, it's certainly highly political now. There's, there's no question about that. Um, uh, she has been declared by the United States wrongfully detained. That, and that, that's a political category. That's Once you do that, that means we're no longer dealing with this like a normal court case. We're dealing as, the, as though she's been taking, taken hostage. And the Russians are reacting to this as though it's political, because we have a statement from the Russian deputy foreign minister um, basically saying that attempts by the American side to make noise in public don't help the practical settlement. So we have a political case. And is she a hostage? Well, sure, because everybody the Russians take... Um, if, the, if the public cares, becomes a hostage. So there's no, there's no question that now the Russians are thinking, you know, what, what can they get out of this?
3: Journalist Kevin B. Blackestone analyzes the systemic moral failure present in professional golf.
11: It's the only sport during my time that sided with racial discrimination over inclusion. And that was back in 1990 when The Western Open was to be held, I think it's Butler um, Country Club in Illinois, where it had been for some 17 years. The PGA basically said that any golf course that was going to host its events from there on um, would have to have a diverse membership. It seemed like a reasonable thing. (laughs) Uh, But Butler National, which was all white, said, no, thank you. Uh, We'll remain all white. You can take the Western Open someplace else. And so the PGA did. And so that's, you know, that's the most recent history. And of course, we know as far back as 1961 was when the PGA rescinded its Caucasians-only clause, which was a written clause, by the way, unlike some other sports that had these so-called gentleman agreements that really weren't written down, but uh, in fact were, you know, de facto um, segregation regulations uh, upheld by membership of those organizations and and enforced by by the people that led them.
3: We've been looking at some of the biggest stories of 2022, and one of them happened in August. It was an FBI search for top secret documents, those secret files stashed in Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, resort, mansion, country club,
1: whatever you want to call it. A federal judge has ordered the unsealing of a more detailed inventory of what was taken. Trump's
10: lawyers clashed with Justice Department officials in court for the first time since last month's search. The federal probe has already revealed the presence of hundreds of documents marked classified in Trump's possession.
12: Then all of a sudden you're leaving. And stuff gets packed up and sent. All sorts of stuff. You know, mostly the boxes, uh, pictures and newspapers and shirts and gear and, you know, golf balls. You're going to be able to see what Trump had and that it was more than just keepsakes and and, uh, mementos. It was serious national security material.
3: Harry Litman, former federal prosecutor. Let's go in depth. On the government filing in response to the former president's request for a special master, because I I really think that document is interesting because it says so little, but it also says a lot. And a lot of what it says is in that picture. And I've been saying this on television that picture speaks volumes. And I'm just
12: reminding our listeners.
5: You know, really, does. What's that, Harry?
12: I, I was just saying, yeah, it, I mean, uh, talk about a, a thousand words. That one, a lot of this is legal, not jargon, but it's legal argument. But then you have that picture, and that is vivid. It really right away gives you a sense of what was going on down there. So I agree. But I also want to say that their filing says more than that. They have a whole sort of 10 pages of facts that push back very forcefully on the idea in uh, the Trump papers that it was all this sort of cooperative, oh, you know, gentlemanly, come on in, take whatever you want. Would you like some tea kind of encounters? um on the contrary it was nothing but um uh, pushback and avoidance and uh, finally concealment uh, all the way through and the reason they were able to do this is another it was another self-inflicted wound by trump he offered up this motion they really did go deep they asked for double the normal pages came in with 40 pages and, and clobbered them both in the facts, and then gave legal arguments, seems to me that they're pretty hard to rebut, and definitely the filing from Trump didn't do very much. Yeah, let, let, me
3: just, let me just clarify my statement. When I when I said, and, and I'm doing this for my followers on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you know, I don't want them to get the wrong idea. I mean, what I... What I mean by you know, when I said it, it doesn't say a lot, but then, you know, it, in a way it speaks volumes that not only that picture, but that filing. And I, and I say that because I've talked to sources who are uh, briefed on the investigation. And, and I asked one source, listen, is, is that all you got? What's in that filing? And of course, I know the answer to that because they're never going to put everything they know into a filing like this. They're going to save it for the courtroom. But this person's response, Harry, was no, there's a lot more to come. Um, And I think that document is sort of another taste of what the government has. And when I read it, Harry, you know, I was thinking, why doesn't the former president just, you know, find a way (laughs) to... To bring the temperature down with the government, you know, find a way to reach out, uh, maybe start thinking plea deal.
12: What do you think, Harry? Well, so on your first point, I get what you're saying now, and you're right. They, uh, they, it's just a taste. But, of course, normally they don't even give us a taste. And it was Trump's filing that gave them the opportunity, even the obligation, because, you know, they like to talk in court. But he did his talking in court, so they were able to respond and really slap him up quite a bit. Um, w- trying to find a way to a plea deal. Wow. I, you know, I've, I've given up trying to psychoanalyze uh, Donald Trump long since. But, man, that does not seem to be in his DNA to me, he's just spent a lifetime of attack, 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 even when he doesn't have the cards. But he doesn't, you know, he's facing much stronger forces than somebody across the table on some real estate deal in Manhattan. So I think his playbook is not, so far anyway, is really not serving him well. But it, I don't think he's got the flexibility to change direction. Uh, you know, the, your, the consequences, as you're suggesting, could be brutal, but he's going to fight to the yeah, end. Yeah, and season. let's drill
3: down on that because you bring up a great point. It, it is not in his DNA. In fact, he we heard this week and CBS News confirm that he hired the former Florida Solicitor General who's known as a fighter. Uh, okay, okay, okay. We know that the former president, you know, his... I think his supporters used to say, if you, you know, if you throw the first punch, he's going to punch back. All right, whatever. Because this is such a serious case. And anybody else, if that were me facing this kind of evidence that we've seen bits and pieces of, I'd be freaking out. I'm not
12: afraid to admit. I would be freaking out. You know, you in a small cell. Uh, yeah, you know, you they gave him so much rope. They gave him a year before he even sent anything uh, along. And that was, he makes it sound cooperative. That was only because they threatened to reveal it to Congress. And that's when the whole thing uh, turned because then and only then did they realize what um, incredibly dangerous national defense stuff he had. And then it took a subpoena and, and then a, a, a a signed attestation we've given you everything and that turned out to be a lie uh, they you you're totally right about here about their kind of playing their cards close to the vest for the most part there are two statements kind of the most scary for Trump in there on uh, and the where it just says upon further investigation DOJ learned and that's kind of code for they have people within his camp uh, telling them about that you know that he still has documents maybe they're even in his desk you know and and the like but the the real um point is he's it doesn't normally he's made a, a lifetime in whether in as a businessman or president to say any kind of lie and at worst um it revs up his supporters and just makes people you know fulminate more but um Here it's different. He's in court. He's in federal court. And if you, if his lawyers say things that are false, or if he says things that are false, there really are, um, you know, consequences and dues to pay. So he he just doesn't distinguish between uh, a court of law and a court of public opinion.
3: Let's continue with our New Year's edition. This very special edition of ACF. I'm your host Jeff Begays. and as we take a look back at the biggest surprises of 2022, you would have to list the midterm election right up there with some of the others. Because both Republicans and even Democrats believe that a red wave would wash over the Capitol with the GOP expected to post huge gains in the House and also potentially regain the Senate. We spoke with Republican political strategist John Easton,
0: uh, so much of politics is a a game of expectations, and expectations in in Republican circles, and, and true for the media. But let's just focus on 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 the Republican Party. Uh, they were way off. Uh, n- nobody. Um, that's obviously a, a, a fact at this point. Um, the Republicans are about to gain the House, and everybody's angry. I mean, that is that is no way to start. And and so you know what what could have been i mean anytime a chamber flips in washington dc it changes the town especially when you go from total control which the democrats have at the moment um to um uh, a a flip a a very very big deal and a a game changer in in terms of uh, policy making in washington dc is is now there's finger pointing and there's uh anger and um and obviously people feel like Republicans really missed an opportunity. There is a problem with, with candidate vetting, um, and I think I think it's gotten worse cycle after
7: cycle.
3: In Democratic political analyst Bill Press.
7: I think it's worth underscoring that this election worked, right? This election put the lie to the Donald Trump lie, right? That our election system is rigged, that the only election that's honest is the one that you win, and you can't trust our election officials. We have- the best and most honest and fairest and most dependable system of elections in the, in the world. People envy what we do. And I think we proved it on Tuesday night. And that, So I do think that's worth underscoring. But yes, I do think there's a major shift here. Now, the two greatest examples that I saw of the shift in tone were the very classy concession speeches by Sean Patrick Maloney for Congress and Tim Ryan for Senate in Ohio who ran a great campaign, but he actually used the phrase, it was his privilege to concede having taken part in this important Senate election. So that was one big shift. And I think the other big shift back to is I I do think, and we heard now from more and more Republican voices that the biggest loser in the midterm elections of 2022 is Donald Trump. He endorsed a bunch of losing candidates. He brought the Republican party down And we are seeing, finally, I think, some leading Republicans say it's time to move on from Donald Trump. Uh, He's going to destroy the party if he hasn't already done so. That's a big deal.
3: Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For now, I'm Jeff Begays. And that is how America changed forever in 2022.